0: Our first topic is a long poem, one of the very great long poems of the 19th century, a poem by Tennyson, Alfred Tennyson, called Maud, which was published in 1855. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about the origins of Maud.
1: Maud was the first long poem that Tennyson composed and published after his in Memoriam, which was the poem that made him spectacularly famous, actually not only in England but all around the world. And In Memoriam was a series of over one hundred and thirty kind of lyrics mourning the loss of his friend Arthur Hallam, and it was so popular that uh, he read it to Queen Victoria and famously it, it was uh, a poem that comforted people who had been bereaved and it elevated Tennyson from a poet who, who had been you know, well-reviewed to a kind of national treasure and that year he became the Poet Laureate. He also married Emily Selwood, whom he'd been sort of semi-courting, I suppose, for 14 years, though for a decade he hadn't courted her at all, so um, she'd been hanging on. And he'd been living a rather vagrant life, a sort of semi-bohemian life, you could say, stalking around London in his cloak and fedora, uh, sleeping on friends' couches, and composing poetry, often in his head as he walked around. And suddenly he became this professional person of letters. Suddenly everybody wanted a piece of Tennyson. It was like this kind of a rock star suddenly going platinum. And he was able to buy a house in the Isle of Wight, Farringford. We moved in it. We rented it, but he then eventually bought it. And Maud is a terrifically strange, weird, disturbing, powerful poem, which is perhaps not what the Victorian public wanted. And it received notoriously bad reviews, about which Tennyson was very, very touchy. He was one of the touchiest poets of all time. There's a great story you probably know about Benjamin Jowett saying, I wouldn't publish that if I were you, Tennyson, after Tennyson read him a poem. And Tennyson responding, well, if it comes to that, the sherry you served at lunch was beastly. But any criticism upset him and Maud received a lot of criticism. And yet it was the poem which Tennyson kind of staked his life on, you could say, and he would repeat it at the drop of a hat. That he was so obsessed with this poem, which is itself about obsession, that he would recite it, not once sometimes, not twice sometimes, three times in a row. Famously, Jane Carlyle, uh, he recited it to her and she said, well, that's not a bad poem or that's some decent stuff. And that wasn't good enough. So Tennyson recited again. And then again, her response wasn't uh, enthusiastic enough. So he did it again. That's about six hours of your life gone, (laughs) listening to Maud. So it was a poem that had enormous value for Tennyson. Mm -hmm. And I want to explore that that, you know, in this hour, why it mattered so much to him, but also what it tells us about the Victorian age, about Victorian ideas, about poetry, and in what ways it works, in what ways it's unsettling and somehow sort of difficult to process.
0: So that tremendous sensitivity to criticism is a characteristic of Tennyson throughout his life. But I'm sure you're right that he's particularly sensitive to criticisms of this this poem that does seem to have had a special place in his heart. And I wonder if one reason that might not be the case is that there is a connection within In Memoriam, the other poem that you mentioned a moment ago, In Memoriam, the great elegy to Arthur Hallam, this brilliant, beautiful, dazzlingly accomplished young man who everyone expected to go on to be a great hero of the intellectual life and a hero of the empire at the same time and so on and all the rest of it. So that's the figure at the heart of the memoriam. But also in a funny kind of very, very occluded way, he's also a figure that lies at the very origins of Maud, doesn't he? Because the, the earliest little fragment of the poem Maud that we can date is a section that comes towards the end of part two – which reads, Oh, that twere possible after long grief and pain to find the arms of my true love round me once again. And this is a very melancholy, sad, touching little lyric that Tennyson seems to have written in the immediate aftermath of Hallam's death. So Hallam's lurking somewhere in Maud, isn't he? In a much more kind of... Disguised way than he was present in in memoriam.
1: Uh, I think so. And there's a lot of autobiographical material encoded in Maud, which Tennyson subtitled in a later edition a monodrama. He originally called it the Madness, but later he called it a monodrama. And the idea is that it's a series of dramatic monologues spoken by the main narrator. No one else speaks. And it reflects a number of things that happened to him. Obviously, there was the great kind of cataclysmic loss of Arthur Hallam and the sense of elegy which that gave rise to. And there was an elegiac aspect to Maud in which two people die. So again, it is a poem which is brooding on loss and it derives some of its plangency from loss. But as in In Memoriam, he gets lots of other stuff in there. I mean, the opening is this Carlylian diatribe against mid-Victorian materialism which is absolutely brutal in its analysis, and not what people thought poetry should do. It was fine for Dickens or Carlisle to sound off about industrialism or about commercialism, about mammon, as Tennyson calls it, but lyric poetry, as Tennyson had kind of defined it and marketed it and made it the national notion that lyric poetry was the kind of thing one gets in Mariana in the Moated Grange, or Tithonus, The Woods Decay, The Woods Decay and Fall. Yes, or and Lady
0: this... of Shalott* or something. Yes.
1: This lyricism was the idea Ideal. So the part of the animus of the reviews that it wasn't for a poet to start denouncing the fact that food had been adulterated with alum and plaster and the vitriol f- madness flushes up in the ruffian's head till the filthy bylane rings to the yell of the trampled wife and chalk and alum and plaster are sold to the poor for bread. And the spirit of murder works in the very means of life. Though that wasn't what poets as Tennyson had conceived poets were supposed to do. So but in some ways it's quite a bold thing to do. Except he's putting it all in inverted commas by putting it into the mouth of somebody he wants us to recognize as again inverted commas mad to some degree. Yes. Aspect.
0: I mean our realization of his kind of mental instability I suppose is only just beginning to stir at this early point in the poem. But yes, I guess in retrospect we can look back and And as you say, all this very intense and rather vehement social criticism, we can perhaps, if you wish to, keep within the cordon sanitaire of his mental condition. But at the same time, the first time you read it, you're not absolutely clear that that the speaker is meant to be unhinged. And you take it as being absolute, you know, bitter commentary on what we ought to stress to our listeners' genuine contemporary scandals of people you know, putting horrible stuff in bread to make it cheaper to produce and more profitable to sell. Or kill children for yeah. the
1: burial fees. They're killing their own children yeah. for burial fees. So I suppose what you have to ask is, what, what's the attraction to Tennyson of a persona like this who allows him to be so outspoken? Yeah. And what's the attraction of the narrative as well? I think we should possibly communicate, to some extent, the, the narrative, which in a way you have to piece together by reading between the lines a bit what happens. but Tennyson, Liked to compare it with Hamlet didn't he? So he thought of it as a kind of Hamlet like crazed but perhaps not necessarily brilliant narrator but a narrator who's who works for allowing Tennysonian lyricism as well as kind of social criticism to be voiced. But it also is a way for him to process various things that happened to him in the 1840s and 1830s. One was his unsuccessful courtship, if he ever got that far, of Rosa Baring, who was the daughter of a very rich aristocratic family. And Tennyson was never as poor as he made out. But he came from a family that was utterly bats, wasn't it? I mean, the craziness in the family of, there were 11 siblings and a a proportion of them went mad. Someone like Edward was put in an asylum in the 1830s, I think, and stayed there till he died in 1890. Septimus was in High Beach where John Clare was. And High Beach was run by Michael Allen. And in some ways, he was a rather liberated liberated concepts of madness, and John Clare liked him initially anyway. But he also managed to persuade Tennyson to invest all his money that he'd inherited and that of some of his siblings and his mother in this crazy scheme to make wood carvings using steam-driven machines. He called them pyroglyphs. It's a kind of terrific notion. So Tennyson thinks, yes, that's a good idea. I'll put my money in that. And, of course, it fails. And the failed speculation, which ruins Maud's narrator's family, which makes his father commit suicide, and the poem opens with a description of the suicide of the narrator's father, was modelled on this failed speculation, and <laughs> Tennyson's loss of money in this harebrained scheme, to make these wooden carvings with machines, supposedly to make ordinary people's houses more beautiful. Yes,
0: to furnish the parlours of the nation, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this extract from The Long and Short, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other Close Reading series, sign up to our Close Reading subscription, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings, or click on the link in the description.